Welcome to Affect Autism. This week we have a special guest with us, occupational therapist Maude LaRue, who is also an expert DIR trainer and runs a total approach occupational therapy pediatric service clinic and among other things a DIR clinic in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And she also wears many, many other hats as well. Welcome this week, Maude. Thanks for having me. Last year during this week, the the blog was about motor planning and sequencing challenges in children with developmental delays. So one thing I wanted to point out and elaborate on for this year is that motor planning and sequencing is but one aspect of the I in the DIR model, individual differences. And the blog last year covered a little bit about what motor planning and sequencing challenges are all about. Motor planning and sequencing challenges are one aspect, but there certainly are other aspects, including sensory modulation, visual spatial processing, and other sensory processing issues that fall under the eye in DIR floor time and the DIR model. So I guess I wanted to leave it up to you, Maud, figure out what's a good way to organize this information for parents, thinking of it in terms of understanding our child's individual differences. I think it's a very important important piece to kind of talk about because of the impact that this has on just general learning. And if you think about autism, that, you know, and there's different theories about autism in different areas, like the central coherence theory, which talks about not being able to generalize. You talk about theory of mind, the ability not to take the perspective of somebody else. And those pieces, that's very core nuggets of somebody that's diagnosed on the ASD spectrum. Motor planning and sequencing is a huge catalyst for those pieces. If you want somebody to be integrated um, in several different areas, like being able to time my doing and my talking at the same time, whether I'm receiving it from a teacher or whether I am executing it myself through motor planning, that timing piece is integrally linked towards it. So let me break this down a little bit. We talk about the overhead term in the fancy term OTG uses praxis. Um, So praxis has got several different components. One of the components is just the ability to have an idea. A lot of our kids on the spectrum don't always have the ability to communicate to us freely through verbal expression. So when they have this lack of verbal expression, they hardly ever know that we want to know their thoughts, that that we know that there's a mind behind that, that face, and that they have thoughts, but they don't know how to express it, so they don't know that we want to know what they're visualizing. So they have a difficulty time to ideate a new idea. And then, because of that difficulty ideation, you don't have to have that, but you can also have a difficulty with initiation. So we, we're asking the child to do something in a certain time frame, and we're asking him to transition from one thing to another. But that task initiation causes for him to have to renegotiate his whole entire system to make that transition happen and to really initiate the new task that's being laid in front of them. And for kids with motor planning, the difficulties in ASD, they don't love new and novel. They like things to be predictable, to be the same, and and to be able that they can control it. So that task initiation is part of the praxis piece. Then there's also the motor planning you're referring to. And also you can call that the executive piece, the, the way that we sequence through an activity. 
the sequential piece. So now once I have an idea, and I'm now initiating this idea, now I need to step sequence it. Step one, step two, step three, step four. And in order to do that, I have to have an understanding of something that's coming next. Um, I have to have some understanding about past, present, and future. I have to have some understanding that there's a beginning and an ending, you know, and there might be a middle. So all of those pieces comply that whole sequencing executive piece. And then I also have to, as I've executed the motor plan, I'm giving my body feedback. So now I have to rely on registration in my body so that I can feel what my body just did and then be able to repeat it. How many times we see frustrated parents say, you know what, it feels to me like I'm teaching him the same thing every week. And um, you know, it looks like, you know, he's never been taught this before, whereas last week he could really do it. And the difference really is registration. Therefore, it's imperative to start your motor planning journey by first looking at how we're registering, processing information, because then your motor planning can, can fall on fertile ground. But that's not the only piece. Then the final piece is also that you're able to motor plan in the same timing as a peer. And this is where things sometimes fall off the boat. Sometimes we can get the kid to do a jumping jack and we can get him to do a push-up and a sit-up and whatever physical activity we're doing. But when we put him back in the classroom, he's not able to do it in the same time as a peer. Um, and that and the job on praxis is not done until timing is also done. And that timing piece is a crucial piece that links many different things. It's the timing between the different sentry systems. It's the timing of the actual motor plan in conjunction with whatever multitask I'm doing. Then it's also the timing that relates to my executive skills when I'm having to organize myself, plan myself, adhere to a time schedule. Very importantly, understanding the passage of time. You know, so many parents will say to you, if I tell him he's going to have the iPad after dinner, he says, now, now? Now, because he has no concept that it's after dinner, we haven't even had lunch yet. You know, that, that time span in between is just non-existent. And this is also for those kids that kind of say um, to the, the parents, says, buddy, won't you just come over here for five minutes? Just five minutes. You can go right back to that video game. And buddy thinks, five minutes? How long is five minutes? It's going to be forever. So let me rather have a frustration moment and a meltdown, you know, so that understanding of timing comes with it. So in essence, it's a very complex issue. I hope I gave you a little, this is actually a two-day course that I just gave you. Yes, yes. There. So hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a lot of information. Just to give parents a little snippet of some examples, it was after school and we had come home and had dinner. And then we had to go and pick up Dada at the GO train when he was coming back home from work. And the way we went to the GO train is the same way we drive to school. And here it is already getting dark and our son started to cry, no school, no school, no school. And he didn't understand, no, no, we're not going to school. We're just going to pick up Dada and we're coming right back home. And it really was an eye-opener for me to understand that he really didn't have that concept of time. Isn't that that's absolutely the truth? And so many people don't understand that very crucial little bit. And then they think of the kid, you know, and I've even heard some teachers say, the kid's just manipulative, the kid's just willful, you know, it must be just behavior. And it's not just behavior, it's, it's, it's totally a concept that they just don't get. 
and it relies on this very essential building block of motor planning. Now, you talked about the different aspects of motor planning, having the idea, um, having the ability to initiate it, and then having the sequence, the, the ability to sequence it, which has to do with timing. I know that a lot of times our son might have ideas, but he wouldn't know how to either express them or enact them. And so that's why you'll see him giving up or kicking something over and moving on to something else. When parents see this and they understand that it's the motor planning challenges behind it, it might help them have a little bit more empathy for the child. Um, The child is, if it's too difficult for the child, or I I guess the other saying that I've heard is, if they could, they would. (laughs) So parents sometimes get frustrated with the children. They should know how to do this. And you gave an example of that as well. But, you know, these challenges are, are really tough. And so what do parents do to help their children through these challenges? And can they be resolved? They can be resolved. And I think that, you know, it's obviously every individual profile is going to have an own little piece that they have to do in order to kind of make this happen. But I think the first piece we have to understand from what you're saying is that it's looking at your child with a different lens. Um, and and we, we need to step away from the behavioral lens for a minute. We know that behavior exists and we know that behavior needs to be addressed. It's not to be avoided. But we need to kind of, I heard... Um, What's her? Tina Bryson, I think is her name, speak the other day and she talks about chasing the why. And that we can, before we react to a certain situation, to first chase the why and figure out what is it exactly that's happening here. If this child is having a difficulty finding something to do with whatever is in front of him, he is going to find something else to be distracting. He's going to find, he's going to be looking like he's also got an attention deficit disorder and distractible by the environment. He's going to look at a visual cue in the environment because his visual system can be directed cognitively. Um, And all of these are going to be strategies that he's going to try to see to avoid planning this next thing with this object in front of me that I don't know what to do about. Um, And even if I'm going to backtrack there, so that's one piece with what I want parents to kind of do is to give themselves permission to step back. When a behavior occurs, the first thing to do is to step back, whether it's in your mind or physically, and say, okay, so what could be happening here? If we determine that it might be one of the many aspects of motor planning that's stopping this child from going forward, we might want to kind of backtrack the steps and say to the child, well, the first thing we can do is blah, you know, so let's just pick it up. Let's have a look at it, you know, and just to orient themselves to the to the physical constancies of the object in front of them that they're expecting to interact with. And then say, oh, let mommy show you next, you know. So those pieces is to kind of break it down and help the child to go through that sequential steps. Another way that we... Can I jump in for for a sec? Sure. Um, That makes me think of a couple of things. Number one is... um, there, I did a blog um, at some number of months ago on scaffolding. That's a little bit of yeah. scaffolding where you're coming in and you're sort of putting a support underneath the child to help lift them along. So you, you want to have a bit of a challenge for them that's not too tough that they're going to move on. So by doing what you suggested, oh, let's look at this together, you're sort of helping them 
focus their attention and sort of scaffolding along, helping them before they um, before they have a chance to lose interest. But also the DIR piece, where in floor time you're using affect and you're trying to follow their interests. So hopefully. It's something that they're they're enjoying doing. You're not, for instance, our son has no interest in Batman figures, even though everybody keeps buying him Batman toys in the family. Um, if I'm showing him Batman, he doesn't care. He'd rather look at the train or some kind of fun ball. So if, if we're following that interest and going with something that he likes and then drawing attention to it and using the high affect and all of the different principles of floor time, that's also going to improve our chances to to keep the child's shared attention and get some engagement and interaction happening. That's right. And that's the ideal situation, right? And But I also know so many families are saying that that ideal situation does not exist like in a classroom always, mm-hmm. right? It depends mm-hmm. on the classroom situation. So there's demands placed on this kid. How do we kind of get this kid to comply to whatever the teacher's demands are or the demands of the moment? Like, I don't have a half hour now. We need to get you in the car and we need to get you to the dentist we're already running out of time and now we don't have the kind of time piece to kind of go with that and there's no real good answer for that but the the so if there is a task demand and we don't have this ideal situation available we need to think about breaking down the steps and making the steps more easily followable and use your high effect that doesn't take time your high affect is always going to help you, even though you're kind of asking him a little bit above and beyond where he is right now, um, because that's just part of life. We don't always get things at us in the right kind of challenge or the right mode of challenge. Um, and so these things uh, are, are um, negotiable with, with families. And, and, and that's, think- that's actually really worked for us quite well, doing the first this, then that. And just yeah. to highlight what we mean by high affect. So instead of saying, come on, we're rushing out, let's go, grab this, grab, do this, okay, let's go, blah, 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 blah. Instead, you're going to slow it down and say, oh, sweetie, first we're going to put our shoes on, then we'll go to the car. And just yeah. using that intonation in my voice and, oh, first... And, um, you know, some people say, oh, your baby talking to your child. It's not about baby talk. It's about using the high affect to draw them in and different children respond to different types of affect. Some and not just that. It is a very well-known brain-researched fact and it's a developmental fact that all children grow by their own intrinsic motivation. So what you're doing with a high affect is that you are garnering that, own, that child's own intrinsic motivation by your affect. You're pulling on it. You're wooing it. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, this child has much more of an impetus to actually look at you and to really follow you and go beyond where he would have gone with a normal kind of a command. So you're actually giving him access. Plus, the brain research is very clear that your early development years are really much more of a right brain experience. So Daniel Siegel talks a lot about talking right brain to right brain. Um, So when we are wanting to engage somebody, we got to get into our own right brains, use our own affect and get into the child's affect brain so that we can harness the intrinsic motivation and pull the child to want to comply but he's not going to be able to comply even with the highest affect if we got him to follow 10 different steps. 
mm-hmm. and he's only able to follow two. And that's the that's the piece that's that's kind of hard for people to understand. But it's so true. And and once you kind of get into this mode, I'm sure you did it. I mean, we've been working together for a while, and you definitely are doing this. Is that once you're into the mode of using these techniques that four time provides so beautifully. It actually does go quicker. Mm-hmm. It actually does take quicker to get through things. And your rush can be met by something that's also developmentally appropriate. Oh, our transitions have improved completely 100-fold in the last couple of years just from using things like that. Because the more we do it, the more our son understands, oh, this happened last week and, and she was right. You know, first we did that and then I got to do this. And so he remembers that. And now the next transition is so much smoother. And just over time, it's just improved incredibly. We have other challenges, lots of other challenges, but the transitions challenge has improved so much. And he'll still have times where it's different difficult, but um, he's co-regulating so much, uh, so much better and so much more quickly than he used to. And there's another couple of things that I want to just maybe support parents with there and that same trajectory of understanding this then now thing is that there's a top-down approach and there's a bottom-up approach to working on motor planning and sequencing. The, you, you need a good OT to help you with the bottom up because there's uh, getting into sensory registration processing. You need to get to an OT that really totally understands the full spectrum of motor planning. And with that, I mean that it's not all created equal. I see many reports come across my desk where they make one line sentence of motor planning where actually it should be a whole page of its own uh, because it's such a complex issue. So we need to find those OTs to work on our team to help us with this piece. But the other piece is the top-down pieces where parents can really be helpful. So one of the things I always ask my parents to do once we get to this stage of development and work is to say to have a little time in the evening, you know, maybe before bedtime or or sometime that there's a nice little cuddle moment to say, oh, so today, first we did this, then we did that. And you don't have to go through every detail. You know, whatever detail this child's narration and language ability can take is, is receptive ability. But you, but you kind of get him in tune with this whole then we did this and then we did this. And then later on, once he gets the first and then, he can go first and second and third, you know, so that those things can start following on each other. And you can do the same thing with a story if you've read them a story. And then afterwards you can say, oh, so first Red Riding Hood went blah, blah, blah. Then the wolf came and then the grandma or whatever is part of that story. So that that's always rehashed and, and it becomes a cognitive construct. And that cognitive construct, once the OT then starts working on the motor construct from below, those two can meet each other and really be extremely helpful in terms of, of supporting this whole process. Great. The whole process of if the body cannot register information in a certain length of time, motor planning can't really happen. Um, so what happens is that the child then learns to use his body either by momentum or by habit and the things that he does over and over and over. So he learns to walk fine. He learns to run fine because it's things he does over and over and repetition is supportive. You know, every child intrinsically knows to repeat in order to get something down. But the, the essence is, is that the child needs very adequate support. Um, and there's a, um, 
you know, just a simple massage once in the morning and once in the evening across the whole entire body could be so helpful in getting that registration up to a level where, okay, if I'm teaching him something now, it might be falling on better fertile ground than teaching him something when he's not grounded and when he does not know where his body is in space. And that, so can, and you, des- can are- you describe for parents... How does massaging the child help? So when you're massaging this child, you're obviously having your hands on his body. Um, And when I say massage, it's not about putting your hands on his body and say, honey, could you check the food on the stove? (laughs) You know, when I'm saying massaging him, it's like being into him. And this is your kind of moment with him together. And when you take the the body in a very deep pressure massage, not light touch. Light touch is often very aggravating for our kids. But if you do a nice deep touch massage and you just take your hands right across the body from top to bottom and you just make some deep strokes happen, almost like you would take a big ball and you can roll the ball over the body as he's lying um, uh, on the floor um, or on the bed. Um, But just having that deep touch, that will get into the real big joint receptors that will actually support where does things stop and start in my body and have you and give you that awareness that registration of awareness and really that kind of a touch stays in the body for quite a while um, and I usually find my parents if they do uh, the research years ago said 90 minutes for deep pressure if you're doing it like for I think five or seven minutes so the massages that I like to give my families is run about 25 minutes to 30 minutes and it seems to last okay until they come back from school and then the parents do it one more time in the evening and that seems to within two weeks you can start seeing that this child's able to be more available and more available and not as spacey so it's part of their sensory diet so to speak That's absolutely and just out of curiosity while we're talking here lately we've realized that our son loves when my husband puts his entire hand so that the palm of his hand is on our son's forehead and the fingers are across his hair on top of his head and just sort of puts a firm grasp and our son just sort of stops and basks in it as if it feels the best that he's ever felt. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and a lot of the ASD kids have got different places for that. Some kids do it on the jaw. They kind of rest their whole chin on you and they will press down on their chin. Sometimes, you know, I think that's also the extreme form of that is that self-mutilation where kids are really hitting themselves and, and banging their, their heads against the wall. And that that's the extreme form of what you're talking about. But it's basically, I want to feel something. I want to feel, this gives me an ability to register something. And I don't think we understand the absolutely insecurity that a body must feel if they can't register where they are. Um, It's completely disorienting. You and I can go home tonight and we will know exactly where our coffee cups are. We'll know exactly where our beds are. And we thrive on the fact that some things are predictable and that we can orient ourselves to that predictability. Our kids with ASD don't often have that as a natural ability. I would hesitate to say 95% of the time they don't have that unless somebody's been working with them. And so what happens is that now they're looking for any kind of a feedback stimulatory, self-stimulatory feedback so that they could actually access part of what we just take for granted. And that's just simply, if I know, if I put my arm in a sleeve, I know what that my hand's going to go out on the other side. Many of our ASD kids don't. They want to follow it with their eyes. Mm. Um, so, and, and they, they, where's this going? Where's this limb going? If I don't see it, I don't know where it is. Um, and then dressing becomes a problem. So, you know, we, we can... 
compound all these issues together, but they all come from that very same aspect. We have a central nervous system. In the central nervous system, we have to be able to process information through 12 cranial nerves on each side of the brain. And those nerves have to bypass each other, has to mix up with each other, have to meet each other in order to get to the prefrontal cortex where I can become executive. Um, and that is the complexity. It's in the central nervous system. And I'm just going to take one minute for one more thing here. We need to also cover the aspect of modulation. I was just going to ask about that. Yep. Because people need to understand there's a difference between looking at sensory modulation and then looking at sensory discrimination. What we've been speaking about most of the times, registering information and processing information is more like the integration, the discrimination piece. How hard do I touch something? How soft do I touch something? What's the distance between me and somebody else? Those things. But really, modulation is a balance between two different systems in my body. The one is my sympathetic nervous system that arouses me and gets me to a certain level of engagement. But then my, if in, in order to stop me from going into overdrive, my parasympathetic has to basically come down and meet it somewhere. And that threshold, we call the just right threshold. And that might be different for you and me. My husband loves sleeping late. I have a disability. I have to be up at six. <laughs> Why my body does that to me, nobody knows. But that's my threshold. That's when I'm ready to rock and roll, okay? So we all have a different threshold that we have in order to meet that. And I know that my coffee will put me in that right place. Somebody else will know that milk will put him in that just right place. Or my first meal of the day. Um, Somebody will know that if I chew gum, some people smoke. Some people keep grazing all day so that they can keep their body in that just right place. We just don't know exactly why we're doing it, but that's why. Now, our kids don't have that ability in ASD unless we work with it. Of course, they can attain all of these things. So this this sympathetic and parasympathetic modulation piece is key in getting me regulated and attentive and sustaining my engagement for much longer periods of time. And it's also, you can have a motor planning deficit just based on sensory modulation. You can have a motor planning deficit just based on sensory discrimination. You don't have to have both, but you, and you can have them separate. They often coincide, though, especially in ASD. So I think that those pieces are, you know, if you're looking at a good OT eval, you need an OT eval that can tell you, this is the modulation piece for your child. This is the discrimination piece for your child. This is the motor planning and the sensory motor piece for your child. And this is where your child is socially, emotionally. Those four aspects needs to be in a good eval, just to give the parent just a foothold about where to go from here. So let's talk a little bit about that modulation piece because our son must be 100% sympathetic nervous system then because he is up, up, up regulated all the time. And it seems like it's very hard for him to come down. He's just so excited, so on the go, so on the move, ah, ah, everything. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you can't relax. So, um, you know, be like more water, more almond milk, more. I want toast. I want this. I want that. Just like one thing after another when we're sitting at the table trying to have a meal. He's he's just barreling out the demands of what he wants next. And, okay, sweetie, first we're eating dinner. Then you can have whatever it is he's asking for. And it doesn't matter that we say that because then right away, more, more, more. He just ignores it and keeps requesting it over and over again. And then similarly when playing, literally bouncing up and down off the floor, playing from one thing to another, um, just always so upregulated. 
So um, I know you've told me a few things before, but for, for the parents who understand what I'm speaking about, what are some things we can do to help that modulation piece? Well, first of all, again, we have to understand where it's coming from. So it definitely comes from the modulation piece I've just described. But there's different kinds of profiles. And there's even, like, we talk about sensory seekers, right? We talk about those people are usually in sympathetic overdrive. That sensory seeking can have several different needs and values. One of them are more or less what you're describing to some degree is somebody that's almost like hooked on the sympathetic overarousal, that they almost feel like in order for me to be able to engage, I have to go into overdrive. In order for me to stay in the game, I have to go in overdrive. And they almost avoid the influence of the parasympathetic. And it's and that's why you can go into a calming voice and they will stay upregulated. The answer is not to match them there. The answer is to keep your voice as calm as possible <laughs> and also to bring that affect down. And you can still be very enthusiastic. Um, like if instead of roaring like a lion, you can still go roar, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can still kind of keep your voice mellow and low, even though you're still getting uh, getting that anticipation um, of the moment still going. But you're keeping your voice your own therapeutic sense of self. You're slowing your movements down, lowering the lights in the room, um, getting some environmental stimuli, playing Mozart in the background is a good modulator. Um, So uh, also to kind of help and support with that pace. And for that family that has this issue, I would often say the tactile massage morning and evening is probably the biggest, biggest clue to help you. And it's not, nothing is foolproof. If I could find one method for everything, I would be mm-hmm. absolutely in heaven. And um, But I can't. Every child's going to have a different profile. But we have to be careful. There's some kids who, will, who are absolutely using the swings and the upregulation to get to the parasympathetic. And there's others who would want to avoid the parasympathetic. And, and you have to be careful about delineating and figuring out which one is your boy or your girl. Um, and Because and, that's going to make a difference. Um, and it's really... But for both of them, we want to calm ourselves down and use ourselves as the co-regulator and and take that co-regulating piece to the child from a distance. The other pieces, too, is that too many families are, you know, take that sensory seeking and then they hug the child, which is a really good thing to do. But then they want to take care of the upregulation. What we need to understand is that the child needs to get to a place of taking care of it himself. So, um, So when we are... In a process of overregulation, we might want to hug quickly and move away and give space. And the child's going into overdrive and see if across space I can figure out something that with my lowering my voice, my whatever I might sing or might do something to modulate them down so that the child can feel in his own body what it means to kind of come down. And then we can say to the child at that point, I can see you're not talking so loud anymore wow, that means you're ready. Or, you know, to give him some kind of a terminology or some kind of a body awareness to help him to know this is what it feels like when I'm coming down and to be much more aware of that. So those are just a few thoughts. Each individual profile, we probably have a different feel and idea for, but those are probably the general ones. And just to cycle back what we were talking about before too, um, like our, our son doesn't talk. He screams everywhere we go. The voice is so loud. And so I will will do what you say. I'll slow it down and I'll speak in my quiet voice. And what my husband says is, shh, let's use our inside voice. And then he'll say, blah, 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 blah. 
shh, and he'll say shh to himself, and then he'll continue in his loud voice. Like, so he knows he's supposed to, but he's clearly unable to. And that's what you were saying before, like wondering about the why, what's going on here? Like he's clearly unable to lower the volume of his voice because he's so overexcited and and um, that's just his mode. <laughs> and, and you know what also... We have found for cases like that, that's very persistent um, in, in that area that they hard for them to come down themselves to use the forebrain. Uh, the forebrain is a, is a little device they can get from forebrain.com. It's a publicly available. You don't need professional training for it. Um, but to get a forebrain, um, which is a bone conductor, which is automatically calming on the vestibular system and really supports the overarousal. Um, and just to kind of plonk that on for like 15, 20 minutes of a, of a of a morning and 15, 20 minutes in the evening is, has been very helpful to some of my families. Mm. So that might be a quick and easy if you, you can't find somebody to help you with that immediately. Okay. Um, now, one piece that we didn't cover yet, which is certainly related to everything we've, we've talked up till now, is the visual spatial processing piece. That's a very important piece as well, because again, there's not always a very conclusive understanding amongst a lot of professionals even about the visual spatial skill. But visual spatial essentially means, how can I move my body in the space by using my visual as direction. So I have to be able to negotiate how far am I from something. If I get into a traffic lane and I'm driving a car, I need to know, you know, what is the space going to look like for me to make sure that I can actually make the turn into the highway? That kind of spatial ability that my visual gaze is giving me is really helpful in the gross sense, in terms of the space around me, but also on the space on paper. So when people have kids with handwriting issues and spatial issues on paper, they tend to want to do handwriting over and over and over. You are absolutely wasting your time. You're going to get to the handwriting for sure you must, but it actually starts in the body. We have to work the visual spatial in the body. Now, visual spatial has got a lot of things that it's dependent upon. So what a lot of people also say is they say, oh, my kid is ASD, he's a visual learner. Everything's a visual learner. And then they get a lot of visual um, schedules and visual stuff to help them, to remind them and those pieces. I think it's helpful. But I, if you're using that in exclusivity and you're neglecting the auditory sense, you are really not doing your child a favor because they, they need to be able to connect both in order to listen to the teacher and look at the teacher at the same time. So... When we looking at that pieces, we want to look at a, a really thorough assessment on ocular motor skill and how my two eyes are working together. Because if my two eyes are not looking at the same point together, I lose depth perception, which can also look like a visual spatial ability. So you have to delineate between that. And is it a depth perception issue or is it a vestibular issue? That's also involved. Then you also have to look at what is the coordination between my central vision and my peripheral vision? You know how many ASD kids love to kind of watch at the corner of their eyes? And that's our sign, you know, yeah. They kind of do this whole thing. Um, oftentimes that relates to the timing between central and peripheral vision. I can look at you and this is my stable vision. But at the same time, I can notice in my periphery somebody passing me by, a car passing me by so I can step on a curb and, and come back. That simultaneous orientation between central and peripheral is also part of my visual space. And then I have to be able to just simply use my vestibular system against gravity in the space that I'm moving in. 
So visual spatial skills is a is a catalyst skill, and we we treat visual spatial skill at the same time that we're treating motor planning. That we kind of see them hand in hand going. Um, and but we start with ocular motor. Start with how is this muscles around the eyes working together? Um, and those pieces have to all coincide. And again, you need the concept of timing to go with that. Um, and so once the child has visual spatial in the body, they can often translate that to visual spatial on paper. So it starts in the body first. Yes, absolutely. You know, the baby, when the baby starts crawling, that's what they do. Because if, until they crawl, they're kind of dependent on where the parent moves them and where the parent sits them. As soon as that baby starts crawling, and of course there's reflexes involved as well um, on those air ends, but as soon as they start doing that reflex of the STNR to start that crawling position, they are directing themselves through space with, oh, I want that ball. I'm going to go get that ball. Oh, I want to put my finger in that electric socket. Oh, mom says no. I'm going to look at mom and I'm still going to go ahead and do it. Okay, because because I can now and I feel so powerful because now suddenly I can move. But that movement puts up starts that three-dimensional visual piece that really supports your visual spatial. And that is what when do you start crawling? Nine months, a year, way before I start putting a pencil in my hand. Um, and, th- and this is something that often, I must say, as a professional puts me on the upset list, is when we try and teach kids too soon um, on things uh, b- when they don't have the building blocks necessary to actually get the job done. Vygotsky had, had a very beautiful term that he used, the ZPD, the Zone of Proximal Development. And he used to say that if your child is on a certain level, and you're challenging him at a two or three levels above, he has two options. The one option is, I'm going to fight and flight you because it's too high to come by. Or the other option is, I'm going to try and work on a bypass so I can meet your demand because you're so sweet and I really want to please you. And both of them being not the right executive pathway for us to be efficient and proficient in the long run. So, um, so yes, mm-hmm. my little spiel there. <laughs> yeah, now... Um... Yes, yeah, certainly it's it's a lot of information for parents and there's such little support out there in the public services for this kind of work. I know that, you know, some school systems have OT services, but usually they're not very good or they're lacking. Um, they might be a good OT, but you only get to see them once a semester or something like that. Um, it, it is a real challenge for parents. Um, I found a couple of blogs here and there that give information that are helpful. Um, certainly, there's a lot of uh, links that I put on my website that might be helpful. Um, and there's a there's a kind of an explanation that they could read through on sensory processing and those pieces. And there's a special section on ASD. Okay. Um, and that might be helpful. Okay, well, thank you so much, Maud. Um, this has been wonderful, filled with so much information. I'm going to put some links on the blog so that parents can go to your website and read up on some of the things we've talked about. And also, another great resource is Maud's book called Our Greatest Allies. And can you just tell um, our listeners a little bit about the story of that book and what's inside for parents? It's basically a journey of one child with ASD that we took through a journey, me and the parent. So the parent is telling her story, and I am 
telling the clinical story. And there's separate chapters on sensory processing, DIR, and other methodologies as well, so that people can kind of see the trajectory that this kid took. And he did not do perfectly, but he did good. And the, the message of the book is it's a journey. It's not about getting a quick fix. I don't think that's available, but it's about a journey. And what's the journey of development can do for a child with ASD? Where can parents get this book? Amazon.com or Kindle. Okay, I'll put links to that as well on the website because it'll really give a clear example of the stuff we were talking about today and how you work through it with with a child. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Maud LaRue. Um, occupational therapist and DIR floor time expert trainer, among many other things and qualifications. Thank you so much for being at Affect Autism. Thank you for having me and all the best to everybody out there.